to a new episode of the Bandroom Podcast. My name is Dylan Maddox, and I am so happy. I am so elated. I am so excited that you could join us again for a new episode. But this isn't any episode, folks. This is the first episode of our new series called The Bandroom Bookshelf, where every couple of months I'll have the opportunity to sit down with some of my favorite authors of books that usually have to do with music education or band, or in today's case, just self-betterment. So before I tell you about today's guest and the book that we'll be talking about, please do me a huge, a giant favor and head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to fine podcasts like this one and give that Bandroom podcast a rating and a review. And thank you so much to everyone who did that last week. I, I remember asking, please give me an early Christmas present and let's get it to 20 for this week. And you guys did not let me down, only slightly. We, we made it to 19. But thank you for those of you that did go leave that rating. And even there was a review. So whoever you are, thank you. Much appreciated. Because this ultimately helps more people find the podcast. And more people get to hear from the spectacular guests that I get to talk to. Like today's guest, composer, writer, Dale Trumbore, who is the author of our first Bandroom Bookshelf book, Staying Composed, Overcoming Anxiety and Self-Doubt Within a Creative Life. I'm going to keep this intro short because our conversation is is self-explanatory, but it was such a joy to um, have the opportunity to speak with Dale about her book. If you if you saw my copy of the book, it has probably 50 kind of post-it tabs in there of amazing quotes that I found very impactful and, and things that I can apply to my own struggles with anxiety or self-doubt. And not only that, she talks about jealousy. She talks about freelancing. There's something for everyone in this book. So don't let Dale's occupation as a, as a composer and the lens that she kind of sees all of this through scare you because so much of it is easily transferable to anyone in a creative life, be it a music teacher, performer, conductor, whatever it is. Uh, there is something in here that, that I know that you'll be able to apply to your own life. So if you haven't already, go check out the book. You can easily find it on amazon.com or .ca, wherever you're located. And also check out Dale's website because uh, though she has this book now, there's so many wonderful blog posts, not to mention her fantastic music. Uh, And we, we talk a little bit about that at the end of the interview as well. But please go pay her website a visit. It is worth your while. So, Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dale Trumpor. So very excited to be starting this new exciting series, The Bandroom Bookshelf, and I couldn't think of a better first guest to have then Dale Trumbor. So welcome to the band room, Dale. Thanks so much for having me. And we're here to talk about your book, Staying Composed, which I'll put on the screen because who knows, this might end up on YouTube. But it, it's just been a, a real treat uh, t- to read your book. And um, I was I was thinking, actually, this this book should be mandatory reading for all undergraduate students. Uh, it was it's just it's there's so many helpful techniques that 
if I knew them whenever I was, you know, younger, it, it would have saved me a lot of time and pain, I think. <laughs> but before we talk about the book, maybe could you just tell us the most famous question of all, a little bit about yourself? I can. Um, but before I do, I just want to say thank you for saying that about the book, because that's actually why I wrote it was I wanted the book to exist that I wished I had when I was 17 or 20 or 22. And so that's that's very nice to hear that. Um, so I, I live in California. Um, I've been here for 11 years. I'm from New Jersey originally. And like many composers, I started playing piano when I was seven, um, which is actually my least favorite sentence to see in a bio about any. I think it's so boring. Like we all started instrument lessons with five or six or seven or eight. Um, and then I, I just, I have always been interested in composing as long as I've played piano or sung in choruses um, and really knew from just even I think at age 17 or so knew I wanted to be a full-time composer for a living. Um, but so I've been working slowly towards that. Uh, I just turned a, a week ago, I think I turned uh, turned 33 on the November oh, 15th. Happy belated birthday. Thanks. Um, so yes, I'm 33 now and I've been working to make this my full-time career since I was about 17, 18. Um, and have always been interested in writing as well, but have, have been sort of in and out of that. That's, I guess that's woven in and out right. of my life um, up until now. But, but yeah, I, I knew that I wanted to write this book and I'd started writing essays in I think 2014 or so or 2013. And that eventually led to uh, not collecting those essays, but writing an entirely new book of these short little, uh, short little chapters about every possible thing you could imagine with anxiety and self-doubt. Right. Yeah. And no, and it, it, it was fascinating, like just reading about you before this and, and you, you mentioned in the book and then I also read it somewhere else, but you come from a very long line of creative writers and it was it's like, we're talking aunts, we're talking uncles. Is there, there's, there's, there's probably some kind of, even like a fourth cousin or something that's an editor of a magazine or something. Probably. <laughs> I'm just now I'm going through my cousins, many of whom are not. It's mostly, it's mostly the aunts. Okay. And like one was a poet laureate of Louisiana. The other was the editor in chief wow. of several magazines. My dad was the editor in chief of a newspaper. My mom was an editor for a long time and now writes children's books. And yeah, it's just right. okay. everyone. <laughs> it's yeah. absurd. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so you, you've had, uh, it's been coursing through your veins for, since you were a kid then that this, this want to, to create both musically and, and through word as well. Um, I'm going to ask the question that you've been asked many times. Uh, one thing that I haven't said is that Dale, out of any guest I've ever had on this podcast, has been on the most podcasts. I think <laughs> in second place is Pete Meek, another composer. But but Dale, there's many other conversations with Dale that I go encourage you to go search, um, especially if you want to learn more bi biographical information about her, because we'll be talking a lot about the book today. Um, but you kind of talked about... Uh, briefly why why you created the book but could you expand on that a little bit about just what what inspired you to to write this book in particular yeah I think for any creative person uh so I, I wrote the book from my experience as a composer but it's intended to be for anyone who does anything um, mm -hmm. anything creative or just really anything at all um I think we've all dealt with anxiety and self-doubt in some form and 
I have a lot of practices and sort of mantras and things that I repeat to myself that I've learned like different strategies and approaches to these moments where I encounter something really negative about my process, but I have, I've found a way to either move through it gracefully or to circumvent it. Mm -hmm. And most of the time it is the former. There's so many little insidious doubts. There's ways that doubt creeps into our process um, when we're creating anything. And part of that, I've said on, on other podcasts, I think um, part of that makes you a good editor. I think there's right. that instinct to question yourself and question what you're creating. Sometimes that's a positive thing, but when it's, when it's not, when it, we're dealing with the shadow side of that, um, yeah, I've come up with a few approaches to or in an entire book worth of, of approaches to move through those moments. Yeah. And I wanted to share them. I think, I think everyone could benefit from learning to move through the worst aspects of their process with forgiveness and, and ease and, um, and viewing them maybe not even as truly negative, but just a, a part of the process that happens and that we can just recognize as it pops up and then dismiss and keep on going with our art. Well, yeah, it was, it, it was interesting to read, you know, I think near the beginning, you talk about the magpie and, mm -hmm. and, and, and seeing, and that kind of representing the distraction or the problem and just kind of acknowledging it, letting it go. And I, and I find these principles in mindfulness and some of the, some of the work by Ellen Langer uh, comes to mind whenever I think about these things, but it, it's, it's wonderful to have that, that image. And I, and I just want to echo what you said about this book, you being a composer and, you know, it helping composers, but like my, my, myself, I'm thinking back to me whenever I was a freelance trumpet player and there's just so many, so much, not only just self doubt and all that stuff, but there's so much business stuff in here <laughs> that is very helpful um, to uh, developing one's career. And and I've I, I was saying this before, but uh, I think this book is is very good for music educators, performers. Um, there's, there's there's so much, and uh, and I'll probably say that a thousand more times uh, during this interview. Uh, but we you kind of uh, hit on this a little bit, um, but it, it's just been so refreshing to read uh, read something by an artist who kind of like you know lifts the lid a bit on their creative process, and especially being in in a world of social media where there's kind of the illusion of perfection. I was just wondering if you could uh, tell us maybe what are a few things um, that, that you hope to help by, by starting a conversation about anxiety and self-doubt, just cause it, I mean, it, it's, yeah, it was great to, to, for you to be so kind of vulnerable and transparent about all of this. Yeah. It's funny. Sometimes I forget just exactly how, vulnerable parts of that book <laughs> get, but I, but I, I did it very consciously, all those anecdotes. Um, another writer who I've actually worked with, who's a poet, referred to the book as a memoir. And I, I at first was like, is, is it? But there are elements of that. And all of that's done purposefully because I've found just in my own life and with my own friends and even new acquaintances, when you are selectively vulnerable and I'm going to I'm going to get a little Brene Brown here because I think she does a really good job of talking about vulnerability and choosing who you are vulnerable with um, and how and when but when you when you do expose part of yourself in that way when you when you are willing to be open about yourself in that way so often people meet you with 
self-compassion and with their own stories of vulnerability and and doubt and their like what's worked for them, how they move through anything that's complicated in their own lives. Um, so I think it it really is useful to share and maybe to to choose ahead of time what you're willing to share about your life and what you're not, mm-hmm. um, especially when it's public. I think boundaries obviously are are really important too. But if you're wanting those kind of conversations about mental health or um, challenges, whether it's the creative process or it is things like business and money, uh, musicians don't talk enough about money, I think. Um, someday, maybe I'll write a book about, <laughs> about that as well. Um, but when you, when you are willing to, to be vulnerable yourself about those topics that you want to have conversations about, so often people will meet you right where you are. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you can have a really in-depth, um, helpful conversation. You kind of talked about this near the end of the book, but just it's amazing how often you think you're by yourself. And then you might you might talk to another composer, you might talk to another artist, and you say, you know, you're vulnerable and you tell them what you're going through. And they're like, hey, no way. I'm going through the exact same thing. And then you learn, oh, wait, everyone is dealing with this and I'm not so uh, by myself. Um, certainly during these times and during the pandemic, I know a lot of music teachers have been feeling like that when they commiserate with each other. It's like, oh, this is better. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think right now we're, we're all in the same, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how even that, that phrase, I think we're all in the same boat. Like we're not in the same boats. Some boats are bigger. Some boats are smaller. We're all in the same storm, but we're all, you know, weathering something. And it helps to talk about it and not to pretend that it doesn't exist because that's, I think, the surest way to not resolving anything is to try and ignore something and hope it goes away. At least in my experience, this sort of thing that we're talking about, whether it's related to mental health or just frustration with something, it's much better to acknowledge it than to just try to steamroll your way through something that's challenging. Oh, for sure. Speaking of problems, let's go to the next one. <laughs> uh, and I don't know, it, it, it could be viewed as a problem. Early on in the book, kind of one of the first big things you end up talking about is procrastination and just kind of some strategies to get through that and to, you know, get back into being creative whenever you you feel yourself getting into a lull. And I, I think, well, at least personally, whenever I th- when I'm thinking of how I can procrastinate, it's usually Netflix uh, maybe I go find some good good old cat videos, uh, so maybe something like that. Um, but you recommend um, maybe putting your thoughts of procrastination somewhere else and, and ways to become a little bit more productive in our procrastination. So I was wondering if you could kind of expand on that a little bit. So I think there's a big difference when we, well, when we feel the urge to procrastinate, that feeling can be coming from a number of different places. So sometimes we do just need a break and we need to step away from our work. And I think it's really important to build in time for things like Netflix (laughs) and watching cat videos. And I definitely do that within my own schedule um, Mm -hmm. where I, well, now sometimes I'll eat lunch. Um, My husband started working from home in January, even before the pandemic. And so now sometimes we've lunch together, but I used to, I used to very intentionally watch TV for about half an hour every day at lunch, just because it gives my brain a break and I'm, I'm sort of procrastinating intentionally. I mean, I have to eat lunch, but I'm, I'm like giving myself 
time off from creating and from thinking about creating in a very conscious way. Um, but sometimes when we have the urge to procrastinate, it is, it's uh, at least for me, it's a feeling of, uh, I think it just, it all again stems from that place of self-doubt, that worry that what I'm doing isn't good enough, that it's not substantial enough or it's not succeeding in the way that I want it to. And so it's like a fear of the work itself. Mm. And when that happens, then the opposite is true. It's not the time to step away from that work. It's the time to engage with that work, even if it's in the, the smallest of ways. Um, I talk in the book about keeping in touch with a project, just spending a little bit of time with it. Sometimes that means deleting a note. Sometimes it means just playing through what I have. Um, mm. But I also, I save the boring side of work for those moments when I'm tempted to just walk away from it. Um, things like editing and moving slurs around on a page or <laughs> yeah. dynamics, like, you know, making sure there's the measures aren't crushed together. And there's a lot of busy work that I can do whether I feel like working or not, whether the urge to procrastinate is there or not, I can mm -hmm. always do these small tasks. And so I save them for those moments where I really don't want to engage with my work creatively, but I can still get something done. And in my opinion, that is still composing. And I have a few friends who I'll be talking to, um, or one friend in particular, uh, Julia Adolph, um, who's a wonderful composer, but we'll be talking about our work and I'll be saying like, oh, I'm just editing. And she's like, you've told me that that's still composing. So I'm going to now say it back to you. But it, it is, that still counts. Even the, even if we think we're or we want to procrastinate, but we're still doing literally anything related to getting the work done, or even, I mean, maybe I use those moments to send emails about the work to conductors. You know, there's so many things I can do to move my career forward, even when, the, uh, when I don't, maybe I do need a break or I, it's so, it's so specific too. I think like right now I'm, I'm throwing out sort of like two or three different pieces of advice, but what the book boils down to is knowing your yourself yep. and knowing your process so well that you can identify like, oh, I've been here before. And when I'm feeling this kind of frustration, that's when I need to step away. Or I'm feeling this kind of frustration and it's just because this is hard, but I need to sit down and work on my piece. So I'm going to fuss with the formatting of the dynamics and then hope that that leads me back into actually composing. Does that make sense? I mean, I know oh, yeah. you, you've no, read the book, so you, <laughs> so you know this. Oh, yeah. It makes sense to me. Um, that was it made lots of sense, and and um, I and it's you know it's stuff that maybe it was in in the back of my head, but I've never like you just articulate it so well, and I'm like, oh yeah, why why don't I just check in with whatever I have to you know do? I, I, that just doesn't mean I have to write the next movement of a symphony. It doesn't mean I have to score study a whole whatever. Um, I, you know, I can just check in. Um, so that, that was immensely helpful. And, and I've been thinking a lot of, you know, about procrastination and it certainly has negative connotations, uh, connected to it. And I think a lot of people might connect the word lazy, um, to procrastination, but, and you, you already, you, it was like the first thing you mentioned, Adam Grant, I've been reading one of his books originals and he's kind of a, he works on making the workplace happier and, you know, and making it better. Um, he talks about procrastination being, um, kind of the avoidance of feelings, just like you said, um, or, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting that you start the book with it. And then we talk about all of that stuff after that. So it, it just, it, it was, it's very seamless, very helpful. Uh, and I know probably one of the biggest 
issues that we all kind of face sometimes. Um, Especially now when if there's ever been a time to want to drown your feelings, I think this <laughs> This is it. I know it's depressing, but yeah. um, but again, we're we're striving. I think we're all aiming for, hoping for a, a healthy balance of oh, yeah. moments where your brain needs a break and needs a rest and needs to go think about something or not think about anything. Um, and those moments where we're just dragging our feet and we should sit down and do what we have to do because it needs to get done and no one else is going to do it for us. That's right. That's what I tell my students to an annoying point, I think. Anyway, <laughs> um, but you know, we, you also just mentioned this about the, the, the idea of taking a break. And, um, and I never really thought of, you know, being creative is, is kind of like flexing a muscle. <laughs> and you talk about, you compare it to working out at one point. And, but I was wondering if you could uh, just speak more about the importance of letting just turning things off for a second, letting the muscle grow back, so to speak, uh, and how that kind of helps your uh, creative process. So one thing I've learned, well, one of my favorite things to do just in, in my life, in my creative life, and just as a person is to go to an artist residency. And I've actually started doing them for myself too, where I'll just, I'll rent an Airbnb uh, for a couple days or like up to a week, or I'll go to a residency. It's a more formal application process and all of that. But then that's great because sometimes, well, they house you, but then sometimes they also feed you, which is very exciting. <laughs> right. um, but when I'm there, I've learned even in those places where there's nothing to do but create. Like that's why that's why you're there, right? Mm -hmm. You have a whole, you have this time before you. There's no one else. You're not feeding your cats, you're not cooking dinner, you're like, you're just, maybe you're still cooking dinner, but that's all you have to do that day is like compose and feed yourself. Right. If that, it, even in those situations, I still, I cannot be productive every minute of every day, mm -hmm. even in the most idyllic, you know, <laughs> place where all of my needs are being met. Yeah. And I'm, like I still I still need to sit for an hour between different composing sessions and read a book or watch a movie at night because I've been composing all day. It's physically impossible, even in the best of cases, to be productive all the time. Mm -hmm. So I think and all of that also, I think it's important to add that when you depending on what you're doing when you're stepping away from your work, that can also feed your work. like i'm a, I'm a big fan of um, I've been talking about this late, a lot lately too, but um, big fan of consciously composing something where I'm at, I'm at a place where the work, I, like where I don't know what's going to come next. So I'm at a place where I'm feeling a little confused or I'm, I'm just feeling uncertain of what I should do. And so I'll work on that. And then I will take a break and I'll do something like showering or um, folding laundry or taking a walk, taking a shower, going for a drive, those moments where your brain has a chance to, to sort of mull over things in the background where your subconscious has a chance, or maybe even at night, like going to sleep. Maybe I'm working on something before bed and I'm giving my unconscious mind a chance to just sort of rinse through ideas and then I'll come back to it in the morning. And so often when I do that, when I come back to my work, I have a fresh perspective. Um, 
I, I have an idea of what will come next in the work and I'm letting time sort out that uncertainty for me. I'm letting time just do whatever it does to my brain <laughs> when I'm taking a break. Um, yeah. And not trying to, again, not trying to steamroll my way through it, not trying to push and force myself to sit at the piano for that extra two hours, feeling really frustrated because I don't know what's coming next, but instead I'm choosing to step away and let my subconscious do that for me. Yeah. And one thing that we forget is often maybe in a break, maybe that's a moment of inspiration that something comes to you if you're on a walk or, um, you know, doing the Beethoven thing, going for the, those long walks uh, and, and to find those things. I also take breaks in between my pieces in a longer sense. Mm -hmm. And I do that intentionally as well because I want to give my brain a week, sometimes a couple weeks, sometimes a couple days if I have another project that I need to jump into right away. But I, I want to take a little time off and just be really intentional when I come back to my next project, when I start something new, I want to have rested. Like I, I want to have taken some time off from that pushing, pushing mentality. Yeah, no, I think it's really important. And it's something I've, I've heard uh, Pete Meekin talk about as well. He, he, he mentioned that he takes very long, long breaks after he's done a commission. You talked about, you know, one of the main themes of this book about knowing and learning your process um, and what works best for you and, and when it works best for you. And you mentioned there's, there, this is a, a quote, uh, there's this widespread misconception that all highly productive people wake up bursting with creative energy and run to the workplace quickly as possible. And this is something that certainly, you know, I think, even to a point, maybe sometimes I might slip up and say to, to say to a student, you should be getting up at 6 a.m. to do this and blah, blah, blah. Um, not forgetting that that doesn't work for everyone. It doesn't work for me. Why, why am I saying that? So I was wondering about how, how you discovered what time of the day or how, when your process works best for you. I think probably I started with weekends, just with whatever time I had. And even in college, uh, where I used to go in the late hours of the night, I would be in the basement computer lab composing till from like nine to midnight. And then luckily my dorm was across the street. So I just kind of stumbled back into my dorm uh, freshman and sophomore year from the Performing Arts Center. But I think it takes time. I think it takes, sometimes it takes maybe setting your alarm early and trying that, seeing if it works to wake up before, if you have a nine to five job, wake up early and get things done then or stay up a little later or what I eventually realized and this was part of a really a really intentional choice on my part to take on part-time jobs uh, that I could sort of adjust my hours as needed after grad school I knew like I think we were talking about before I knew I wanted to be a full-time composer pretty early on so I worked as a babysitter and a piano teacher. Those were the main jobs where I could really, I could scale up my hours or scale them back down and, and adjust them and clear out time. Like eventually I hit upon, if I sit down to work around one or 2 PM, I, it feels more comfortable. It flows more freely. That's just like two to four is my sweet spot for composing or just really for anything creative. And that doesn't mean that I can't compose in the morning or I can't compose it at night, but for whatever reason, that's just, that's like my body's peak creative time. 
so I now I'm pretty intentional when I have a project that's that's due like as we're speaking right now it's 2 30 my time this I don't have any projects due in the immediate future (laughs) but if I did I'm I might go into my calendar and block off this time very consciously wanting to keep it sacred and then it's important to say too I think when I when I do get close to a deadline then sometimes all of this goes out the window and it doesn't matter what my peak creative time is because I just need to get a project done and I think we've all encountered this we Mm -hmm. just all hours, any spare minute we can have, we can get. That's yeah. what we're, we're trying to finish, whatever it is we're working on. Yeah. But two to, yeah, two to four for me works and it's different. It's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I think it's important to really acknowledge of what you said at, at the beginning of all this and it, it takes time. Um, uh, you know, even, even when I was reading, I was like, oh yeah, I should think about this more immediately. But you know, I'm, I'm going to have to try things out more and my students will also have to try things out more and other people and so on. Um, just, you know, whenever you're thinking most clearly and, and all of those kind of things. One of the chapters that I, I loved the most <laughs> was what's worthy of your worry and knowing the difference between wondering and worrying. So this really, I think, comes back to anxiety. And I am like, I, I, I say in the book, it might be the first sentence that I am an anxious person. My mind is well-versed in anxiety. Uh, <laughs> that's the first sentence of the entire book. And it's true. So the way that my anxiety manifests is sort of looping thoughts where I'll become so concerned with something that I have trouble getting things done because mm-hmm. my, my mind is focusing on something. It's worrying in a way that it shouldn't, or it's worrying about something that I should worry about, but like years from now or months from now or days from now, I think one example I use in the book or or just one example in general is something like traveling where you can worry about whether your flight's going to be on time or packing, but you're not going to pack two weeks before your trip, right? (laughs) You can only pack. There's a window where it makes sense to be worrying about that specific trip. And I think that applies to plenty of creative things as well. Um, I talk in the book about when when is a good time to worry or to sort of obsess over whether what I'm creating is any good. I think there are plenty of parts in my process, like the beginning of any new project. I don't want to be thinking about whether the work is good. I just want to be doing something. I just want to be getting something down that I can edit later. Um, But this idea of worrying versus wondering, some questions are productive. Some questions, it's really, it's worth it to mull them over multiple times. Things like, how am I finding and connecting with the kind of people that I want to work with? How am I I nurturing long-term relationships with collaborators who I I just really want to work with again and again and again? That's a really productive question, but thinking like, oh, this one conductor, I really want to work with them. How do I get them to do my music? Like I've already sent them my music. They already know who I am. They already know where to find my music, but how do I get them to like me more? That doesn't help anything, right? I have no control over that person's emotions and feelings towards me. Like if I'm already, you know, I've made that connection. I've sent them a few pieces. I can't, I, I can be nice to them at conferences maybe right I can send them an email from time to time with a new piece but I cannot control whether any one person in particular likes or does not like 
my work. Yeah. So that that is a very unproductive question to worry about. And noticing that difference when you find yourself, the first step, of course, is just catching yourself in those repetitive thought patterns yeah. or noticing the same question popping up. But once you do, then you can sort that question into, do I have any control over this at all? Mm-hmm. And if I if I don't, then it's probably not worth my time. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, there can be like a flip side to either thought of of that. You know, I'm I'm someone who always ends up picturing themselves and say if I if I am applying for a different job or if I'm applying for something, I'm I'm like picturing wondering what my life would be if I was in that or stuff. But then you can go on the opposite side of negativity and what happens when I don't get it? What what will they think and all this stuff? So so yeah, I, I found a way of just the idea of of wondering. And, and worrying I, it's just yeah it was it's a good way to to think about it um, i i had a, i had an ex-boyfriend once say when i was i was wondering whether a concert would or would not happen and how it would how it would happen he said you're picking out the shoes to your premiere before the premiere isn't even <laughs> scheduled and i was like you're right and that's kind of a silly anecdote but it helps i think to have these really specific phrases or stories, anecdotes that we can remind ourselves of when this happens. Like now when I catch myself doing this, sometimes I do like I mentally I'm like you're picking out the shoes to a premiere when you haven't yet gotten the commission. Like it's (laughs) it's short and it it reminds me to just come back to what I can control and what's happening right now in the present. Yeah. I know I I definitely have a couple of conducting outfits that I have planned out. Um, and ready to, to go for that concert. But um, but yeah, so I do know what I'm doing. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. The, the, the holidays are right around the corner, and I don't know what I'm getting my family. Oh, wait. Maybe. Maybe, maybe I should get them some sweet bedroom pod clothing. Hey, and maybe you should do that too. Be the coolest kid or teacher at school with your very own Bandroom Podcast clothing. Show that you're a bandy, loud, and proud with a BRP t-shirt, long sleeve, hoodie, or coffee mug. You can rest easy knowing that the profits go directly back to helping support the Bandroom Podcast, helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Use the promo code HOHOHO to get $5 off your purchase. Check out all the sweet BRP merch by visiting bandroompod.com slash store, which will bring you to our Teespring storefront. Ho, ho, ho! Um, and speaking of uh, worrying and kind of maybe one of the triggers of worrying is maybe seeing someone doing better than you or better than you in, in air quotes, I'll put that in. Um, I personally, I've been very lucky to have a, a mentor who is constantly, constantly reminding me that, um, you know, being in this business uh, of music and specifically, I guess, conducting and education is not a competition and there's lots of room for many different paths. However, I still end up comparing myself to others. You talk about a couple of different ways of of dealing with these thoughts of jealousy but the one that really struck me is the technique of flipping the question of jealousy um, back on yourself 
Yeah, so the way that I talk about it in the book is whenever you have a specific jealous thought, and again, this this relies on you have to be able to label them, well, first to notice them while they're happening, and then to label them while they're happening. But I know I certainly, especially earlier on in my career, now I'm I'm pretty confident in what I do. And especially choral music, I am good at writing choral music. And I don't know that like, it's, it's a nice thing to feel confident in your work. And it's a nice thing to say that you're confident in your work. Um, I, whenever I hear other people say, like, this is why I'm saying this now, when I hear other people talk about their work this way, I'm never jealous. I'm always like, that's amazing. Like, you're great. And you know that you're great at this thing. And like, that's good for you. Um, so I'm a good choral composer. But Earlier on in my career, when I was still very much finding myself and finding my voice and figuring out how to make money at all of this and looking at other people making more money, there are still, there are so many choral composers in particular. I mean, I, I write lots of, I, sometimes I catch myself talking about this, like I only write choral music. I write lots of different kinds of music, right. but I write a lot of choral music and there are other people who make way more money than I do, but <laughs> their goals might be different than mine. So what I learned earlier on that I now apply whenever this happens in my head, whenever I'm comparing myself, like, why did that person get that commission? What I, I try and narrow it down to something very specific. Like, what is it that I, what exactly am I coveting? Am I seeing that I wish I had when I'm looking at them? And maybe it's, um, maybe it's that person is getting so many more performances than me. And then I flip that back onto myself and that becomes, how do I get more performances? It actually has nothing to do with them. I mean, it has a little to do with them in the sense that we're using them as a mirror, um, but it's not about that person. It's about my own insecurity, always. Like that's what jealousy is, <laughs> yeah. right? It's about your own insecurity. So you're taking those thoughts and you're you're flipping them back onto you. What specific action can you take now? Again, what can you control? So maybe it's out of my control. I'm trying to think of a, a good example. Um, if someone was, uh, let's say someone's like the daughter of a very famous conductor and their music, I'm not thinking of any particular <laughs> person. This is, if you're listening and you're the daughter of a very famous conductor, this oh, is not really about you, so. but that would be, uh, <laughs> that, be cool. Good for you. But like that person will just necessarily have a lot of connections that I won't have. So I can't control mm. that kind of circumstance, but there's so much that I can control. If I want more performances, I, I can send, I can be sending out perusal scores to more conductors. I can be going to more conferences where I'll have the chance to speak to more conductors and put my music directly into their hands and follow up on those new connections, right? I think I say in the book too, if I'm looking at someone's website and I'm like feeling jealous of their website, <laughs> then that becomes a prescription as well. Like what yeah. do I, what, am, what could be better about my website? What am I, where could I make subtle changes maybe just in a day in a, or in an hour even of looking at my, like what could I tighten up and make better? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, th this is one instance of many in the book that you, you kind of, <laughs> you point out something that is in life and is not going to go away. It's always there, but there's a way that we can kind of, as you said, give it a prescription and we can turn it into a plan um, to something positive. Uh, so it's just so great to be able to just not wallow 
in the negativity of jealousy and or whatever it is and being able to turn it into something else. Um, it was really eye-opening for me. Um, and I also love the metaphor that you talk about, about, you know, being in your car and, and that person passing you, but then eventually there being a, a, a traffic light and you're right next to them. And then they end up turning maybe left and you go right, realizing that those paths are completely different, leading to, you know, a relatively maybe similar thing, but, but very different. One, one funny thing about writing something like that down in the book is that now I think about that whenever that happens to me in yeah. real life. And it, I, I notice it all the time now. Like I was noticing it before, but since I put it in writing, right. now every time that happens, I'm like, oh, yes, this is my je jealousy metaphor come to life. <laughs> and there's always that question that I, I, this has nothing to do with it. But I'm just like, where's that person going? That's all I'm thinking. Right. I, I I, I try and tell myself when I'm getting, if I'm getting a little like road ragey, like, why are they going so fast? I'm like, their sister is sick. Like yeah. they're in the hospital. And they're going through. Yeah, that's yeah exactly. <laughs> that's definitely it. I, I know composers listen to this podcast, but uh, I've been trying hard to, you know, make it, make it so we can apply these things to everyone's life. But I want to speak specifically about the role of, a composer because i know many of us you know if we're not composers we end up working with composers a lot i know for a fact sadly that you know many people sometimes view the role of a composer to be something that's very private you know introverted you you go into a room by yourself and you write a piece for me and then i perform it right but you you speak a lot of uh, about the importance of of collaboration and how finding the right collaborator for for any given commission or project is very important to you first of all i was wondering why i mean i i know why but i want other people to know why and i was wondering if you could maybe speak about some of the elements for you that go into uh making a, a great collaborator so i think those actually maybe both of those questions have the same answer which is that i've found the collaborations where I really respect the person I'm working with as a person and as a musician, those are the, the best, the most fruitful, the most joyful projects that, I, that I've had in my career. And then to, sometimes those end up, then you get like this wonderful blur between friendship and professional collaboration, which means if you're going for a premiere, let's say, so very often I'll write a piece on commission. I'll try to have a clear sense of what the conductor wants in advance. And then like it, what pieces they have loved performing in the past, if there are themes that they're thinking about when they commission this piece, all of that. And then when I go to work with them, it's like when I when we're making changes to the piece, if we're, if we're workshopping it a little bit, it's easier for me to bring up things with them because I feel really comfortable with them as a person. And hopefully it's easier for them to say something to me like, oh, Dale, can we try this this way? Or like, we were thinking about this. There's no, there's no tension of like, am I going to offend this person by, no, there's, it, there's like ease and freedom and clarity and specificity in the way that we can talk to each other because mm -hmm. we, there's that element of friendship there as well. And I try to find that in just in everything that I do. I think I'm always looking for those people that I connect, not necessarily conductors, but other composers, other musicians of any kind, where there's that camaraderie there. And then if I can spin that into working together at some point, I know that that's just like the, those elements will only enhance each other. 
-hmm. And also if I really respect that person's craft, then that makes me, that makes me be a better, like I, I want to be a better composer. I want to be a better artist sort of like to impress them, not in a bad way, but it, yeah. like, I want to be worthy of their collaboration, right? Like I want to be the kind of artist that they would want to collaborate with as well. Yeah. So yeah, I just, when, whenever I'm talking, especially when I'm talking to people who are still in school, in high school, but especially in college, I always say like, try start finding those people now because this is where like, that starts really early. It yes. might start in high school, it might start in college, maybe it even starts before then, but so many of the people that I'm still working with now, I like their connections from undergrad, um, when I was like 17 or 18 and just like really connected with someone and then it's just hopefully it's going to be a lifelong collaboration. Yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more about that, especially for that last point. There's just so many instances where I, you know, maybe even in the negative sense where I, I never thought I would see this person again. And guess what? They're sitting right next to me <laughs> on a gig or whatever it is. Or the guy who adjudicated me in grade seven is now someone I adjudicate with all the time. Um, so yeah, so you just really truly never know who's going to be your friend for or a colleague for life. And almost uh, one thing I want to uh, bring up about the whole idea of collaboration between artists and composer is I think for us often too, that, that's speaking for me anyway, as someone who has zero composition ability, like <laughs> zero, I respect all of your gifts so much. But for us, I find it's it's often a way to be involved in that creative process and you know <laughs> through through the composer, you know, making whatever suggestion. Um, but it's it's much more of a fruitful thing whenever there is that collaborative spirit rather than just kind of asking for a product and it being delivered. I think yeah. those moments of collaboration make the piece better too. I, I always, in, it's not an exaggeration to say that I think, well, to say in every piece I've written, some element of the first person to perform it and, and sometimes the second or third person to perform it some element of that collaboration has made it back into the score where I've gone back. The score that I gave them initially is not the, the, fin the finished project or the finished product because in the process of working on that piece, we come to like, that's where the, that's where the magic is. That's the beauty of writing for live performers is those changes happen and and sometimes the performer has a much better idea for how to phrase something or how to how to build upon something or take time somewhere than than I put on the paper. And that's again, that's like the beauty of it. That right. I want that to happen as often as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And and kind of in the, the same vein, how do you know which commissions, projects, collaborations to say yes to? Uh, once you you know, you speak early on about and it's it's the same in any kind of freelance based uh, field, but you know at the beginning you kind of have to say yes to everything. So how do you know when uh, when you're past that stage to to what projects you're involved with, or or even more broadly finding a balance between personal projects and and your commissioned work? So now, honestly, a, a lot of it is a gut reaction, but it's a gut reaction that I've honed over <laughs> right. you know over a decade, and that comes to I think from uh, retroactive introspection, I guess, in terms of 
thinking about like when I complete a project that doesn't feel that way, going back and thinking like, what doubts did I have in the beginning? Did I have doubts in the beginning that I should have listened to? And in the book too, I talk about noticing every stage of the process, uh, especially the beginning of a collaboration, paying attention to things like, is this potential collaborator treating me in a respectful way? Are they responding in a timely manner? And that, that one, I mean, I have moments where I slip up and I'm a week late and sending an email back or something like everyone, those aside, um, are they respecting my time? Are they, are they offering, like, are they offering terms that are agreeable to me? Am I getting pushback from them when I try to speak up for myself and for what I want from this collaboration? There's all sorts of things, or even looking at their past work too. Like if they've released some really rough recordings, your work will probably also get a really rough recording. Like it's not going to be the most polished. They're not going to change for you. Now I feel like I'm giving relationship <laughs> advice. <laughs> Like you won't it's all transferable. That's fine. <laughs> it is. You won't be the exception. Yeah. If you're looking at a collaborator, wondering whether to work with them. And I've I've definitely had moments. I had one one piece in particular that I won't go into too much detail about, but where someone, another composer said, Oh, I've worked with that person, like just don't even bother like either like take the money and write what you want or just don't take it at all. <laughs> but like don't expect any great magical like all the things we were just talking about like don't expect that this person just like is a commission machine and i was like oh okay like i guess i'll take the money and write the piece but yeah wow this is the worst thing but it, but it was true it's just kind of like boom boom like write the piece get the check yeah they did it they didn't really want feedback they just did it and no i, th I yeah. think that's that's very helpful freelance well i find i don't know it's it's probably not the same for everyone but i especially getting out of an undergrad getting out of a grad degree and starting a career if you're not going into like your terminal degree there's often a stage of yet you need to figure something out in a freelance kind of mindset especially nowadays and i i find that there's a, a big misconception that i did all this training <laughs> and it's just going to come knocking at my door all the jobs all of the commissions um, but you speak about not waiting and and you say do it now um, so <laughs> if you could uh, mind speaking about how how that looked personally for yourself in your your own early career so i i've thought a lot I still do this, and but especially when I got my master's in 2011 from USC and then knew that I wanted to not take a nine to five job, to not go to grad school, to give myself, I told myself I was giving myself three years to see if I could get my career going in the trajectory that I wanted. And if not, then I would go get a DMA. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I was thinking about my goals and I knew, um, like at that point in my life, I knew I wanted an album. Uh, as sort of a calling card, not necessarily to make money. And the album I released did not <laughs> make, I mean, it made a little bit of money, but but I, I was thinking about like, what resources do I already have and how can I put them to use now? And who do I know who I really want an excuse to work with uh, on, again, this goal was to sort of establish myself, to give to give myself an excuse to talk about my work in a bigger sense and to promote it. So I ended up making an album of art songs with a really close friend, a soprano. And we we released that album and it it did it did what I wanted it to, which wasn't to like win Grammys or, you know, make a ton of money. It was just to establish 
my name and get my work out there. Mm -hmm. But that's just, that's one very small example of, I think in general, if you're at that stage in your life when you're feeling maybe a little helpless and you're feeling like things aren't coming to you as quickly as you want to really think about what, first of all, like if you, if you had infinite resources, what would you want to be spending your time on? What would you want to be doing? And then taking a step back and asking what resources do you have? Very often that for composers, that means uh, what instrument do you play? Can you write a piece for yourself? Could you record that? Could you put together a concert or a series of concerts, maybe a tour in places where you have family or friends and you know that you'll have a built-in audience when you go perform there? If you wanted to start a, a band or a choir, it might be like or just a small chamber ensemble. It would be like, who do I know? Who do I really enjoy playing with? What can I, what can we do right now? And I think once you come back to those questions, then you you have a sense of control, right? You're asking again, <laughs> I keep saying this, but you're asking what you can control in your life. And there's so much we can't, but those, if you're asking the right questions, then you come back to where you do have power over moving your career forward in the direction that you want. Yeah, no, it's it's really great advice because I think so often, you know, waiting for some stamp of approval from whatever ensemble or whatever, maybe mentor, because I know a, a lot of the time uh, we're told we're too young to start doing something or we don't have enough experience to work with whatever. So the idea of just like not ignoring that, um, but certainly telling yourself do it now uh, is, is a really great piece of advice. And you, I think it's important to add, you get the experience by doing the yeah. things. <laughs> and sometimes you have to be the one to go, to go do whatever form of it, whatever you want to do to find a way to do it somehow so that then you have that experience. Because if you're just relying on other people to give you that experience, that's not Yeah. very often. That is not how it happens. And then, and then you're just, things are just passing you by that you're still not getting because you haven't put you haven't put the time and the work in on taking control of your life and doing what it is yeah i feel like a broken record a little bit what can you control (laughs) what can you move forward (laughs) just to further that you you speak about you know it's not enough just to read this it's not enough just to read another book on composition or conducting to really like you said just try it apply these things do something do something that will further your craft your creative uh, mind whatever it is as much as i love reading and and speaking of those ideas i was wondering because it's been when this came out 2019 yes which now feels a very like a very long time ago (laughs) have any of your ideas changed since writing the book in either good or bad yeah (laughs) right i I don't think they have changed. I do think if I wrote this book now, I I don't know if there would be like a, a plague chapter. Um, <laughs> a COVID. Black backgrounds on the pages. Yeah. Yes. But I, I, I think maybe with the experience of going through COVID uh, and, and everything that's meant and for musicians it's been devastating this time has just been absolutely devastating in terms of work lost and just 
the lack of new, I, like I'm still getting commissions, which is great because I work on commission and I rely on that for a lot of my income, but there it's, it's fewer. There, I think people are feeling really uncertain about the future. And anyway, if I, if I was writing this book now, I think I would put more of an emphasis on being kind to yourself. And I think I, I do that in the book still, but yeah. during this time, I've really, I really needed to stop measuring myself by my productivity because that is not the only indicator of my worth as a person. Honestly, right now, I feel like our, our job is just to stay alive and well (laughs) during this time so that we can get through it and get back to making music the way that we like to make music and (laughs) arguably the better way to make music than the way that we're making music now. Yeah. But I, that really just, I have days, um, or I've had days lately in the last couple of months where if I just get one thing done, that's enough. Like that's a success, just one thing. And that's all, that's all in the book, but it's a lot harder. I think when everything is shut down and my income's taken a hit and I am so used to being productive. I'm so used to getting on and off of airplanes and going to hear premieres and working with people and seeing people face to face and getting all of those interactions. And then to have this happen and just be like, if I can just engrave a minute of music that is handwritten and put it into my computer into Sibelius, like that's a success. Um, it's a different measuring stick, right? Like it's it's a different way of, judging your productivity and your success and all of that. But I think this time calls for that. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I told you before the interview, there was just, I have so many tabs in this book. <laughs> There's probably more tabs than there are questions. Um, but you just, you brought up a, a really wonderful point of, of kind of, you know, not connecting your, your worth to those external things. And, and one of the, the places I have tabbed here is it's in the chapter, um, muddling through the middle you talk about you know we're waiting for the big win and how that's gonna to change us be it a competition or a grant or anything but if if you don't mind uh, i just want to read just a little bit of it um so hoping desperately for one big win isn't the best way to go about a career it's certainly not the only way i learned to cultivate an inner flame of worthiness on your own regardless of whether any external marker on your own success is on the horizon and uh, yeah whenever i read that i was just like yes amen absolutely <laughs> um it's it's so important whenever you know talking about going through these times that we're going through now and and not burning out to to being able to find that that flame within to to rise up and it that i feel like it took me it took me years to get to that point and then this is this last year has just shaken it's shaken everything up i think it's shaken up every element of our lives and so that's everything it's not like it went away but it's i've had to sort of recalibrate that again Mm -hmm. to to think even if i just even if i just have a day where i'm reading a book outside and that's enjoyable and i make dinner and i make my sourdough that's still going it's been going since yeah. march i laughed because my know, like, wife has started making sourdough that's why I oh yeah <laughs> it's, i just got um, a banneton basket and a dutch oven for my birthday oh <laughs> a wonderful week ago 
And so now like the, the sourdough has suddenly taken on a new, I've been doing it for months, but now it's even better. Very exciting. <laughs> but anyway, but like, even if that's all, even if I don't get any work done, I'm still a worthy person. I'm still a talented composer. I still deserve the success that I've found with my work. Like one bad day, one bad week, one bad year doesn't negate that worthiness. Yeah. And I, I mean, you, you did just, you kind of already answered my next question, but um, I was wondering, especially now that we are in the pan pandemic, is there anything else of, of your, uh, your teachings, your techniques uh, that you found especially helpful during the, the pandemic? I mean, I think, well, the, the keeping in touch, uh, that idea that I talked about where even if I'm, ha I'm feeling tremendously unproductive and like I can't bear to look at my work if I still just force myself to sit through the piano and play through the sketches that I have inevitably something else like one more measure gets written or I change something and then hopefully the next day or several days later the piece takes a significant step forward mm -hmm. so that's I've been just coming back to that idea again and again and when I talk about the book I try, I try to mention how uh, much like exercise or brushing your teeth. Um, th these practices are something that you have to do every day or every time that you work on something new. It's it's not like you level up and become this enlightened composer who never doubts herself or or worries about anything. Like I right. still have anxiety. I still, I mean, I, I'm much more composed and less mm -hmm. anxious person now than I was 10 years ago or five years ago or even two years ago um but I still do need to put these practices into my I, into my daily life I still need to be reminding myself of them and that's why I wanted to write this book as well is to to put them out there as tools because I am still using them and they are you know if you have if you have a tool if you have a pen and you never use it it's not <laughs> it's not any use but if you're yeah. you have to use the tools to see change results yeah, yeah absolutely i remember I, I heard it once said at a <clears throat> at a conducting workshop um you know we had like a little a round table kind of discussion at, at the end and someone asked the question to the i forget who it was it might have been someone might have been mallory thompson from northwestern um but it was said someone asked her how do you get to that place of balance where, you know, everything's working for you and you can score study and you can take care of your family and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but she mentioned kind of exactly what you mentioned that balance is not a place that you like get to. It's, it's a verb and it's, it's constantly mm -hmm. happening. And, and the way that you talked about that with using the tools uh, is, you know, it's going to, you're going to, these are things that you, we have to be constantly thinking about and applying to our lives. And it's, I like the, the idea of leveling up. That's fun. Yeah. You don't just become, the next level of composer no um, <laughs> well on some level i mean money helps oh, that's yeah. a whole different podcast you heard it here, but, folks. Uh, money fixes yeah. everything no okay <laughs> no it does uh, fix some things though oh yeah like sure. paying your rent without feeling insecure about whether you can pay your rent or your mortgage but yeah. again that's that's a whole different topic <laughs> for, for the for the uh you know episode 200 of the band room bookshelf We'll have you back to talk about that book. Speaking about of my another, money book, yeah. Yes. Speaking <laughs> of another book, this book is, I'm just turning through the pages here. It is counting the about the author page and the blank one. It's about like 200 pages, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then at the beginning, you talk about how 
initially the idea for this book was going to be, you know, the, com the composition book to end all other composition books to answer the questions, every single question that you could have as a composer. Um, but you ended up making something smaller, much more specific, uh, you know, about deal dealing with anxiety and, and self-doubt. So I was wondering, can we expect another book? You talked about the money one. Yeah. So I, someday I would love to write a book about musicians and money, including interviews with lots of successful people who I know and who I would also reach out to. Um, Cause I uh, like the things, like I was saying at the beginning, the things that we don't talk about as creative people or as musicians, um, I, I know I'm hungry for those conversations, whether it's anxiety or it's money. And, and we can get there by being the first one to start those conversations. But if nobody does, then they just don't happen. Mm -hmm. And I think talking about money and music, it's still like there's this taboo of, around talking about it. And I would love to write that book. I'd love to write a book about choral composition in particular. Uh, and like going beyond sort of the very, very basic steps about stressing the right syllables and everything, but thinking about texture and all of that. And then another one about, I don't know when I'm going to write all of these, but <laughs> at some point <laughs> talking about them so maybe it'll happen. Yeah. Another one about um, networking, but in, in the sense that we were talking about, about how to create, how to find your people and get your work out there and talk about it in a really confident way, which mm -hmm. is something I still struggle with, but I've come a long way uh, in how I, write a program note or speak about my work publicly, especially as an introvert, being comfortable getting yeah, yeah. up in front of a thousand people or, you know, maybe just a hundred people right. uh, and, and speaking about what I do and how I do it. I've come up with the same as with staying composed. I've come up with so many strategies that have helped with getting over those fears of, of approaching someone the wrong way or talking about something the wrong way. And I would love to condense that all into a book as well. So that's at least three books. <laughs> I have I'm so much hope going into the I'm future. Yeah, I, I do too. Um, I just need to overcome my pr procrastination and <laughs> write three, like whatever, 600 more pages. And then I'm also working on a book of short stories, which is just mm. out of left field. That's, I don't even know. That's been a hobby the last year although i'm incapable of having hobbies because as i say in the book i am a type a overachiever uh and so i'm always trying to like <laughs> this can't just be a little secret thing i do you mentioned uh you mentioned the book and you uh, during our conversation that you know you are a composer but you you compose a lot of choral music and i i've noticed that since this is the band room you have written is it one piece for band wind ensemble but I find it fascinating because you went to USC. I was wondering first, did you have any like any contact with Frank Tichelli or or H. Robert Reynolds? Yeah, I took a class uh, called Writer Composer with with Frank Tichelli, right. and and still bump into him at concerts sometimes. And he's just a wonderful, yeah, wonderful human being. Just like a really a really great person. Like I was saying before, like a really great person and a really great musician. So. Yeah kind Absolutely. of person you want to seek out in your life and learn from. And yeah, so the, the band piece, I realized I hadn't written a band piece and uh, was talking to someone about 
putting together a consortium and then actually did put together a consortium that sadly, I think there were three performances of seven maybe total commissioners. I should know that number off the top of my head, but a, a bunch got cut off due to COVID. But hopefully this will be the first of many band pieces. Right. And the piece actually is called Fearless Canyon and is about an anxiety trick where you imagine your anxiety as a sort of a concrete object with size and matter and place it into the biggest canyon you can imagine. So I imagine, uh, there's of course the Grand Canyon, of course, but yeah. I imagine a, a canyon a gorge in New Mexico where I did an artist residency and lived for three months. And just this really beautiful place where you stand on the bridge and you look down, it's just massive and you feel very small but right. that anxiety trick that this this band piece is based on it yeah it, i think i i find it helpful oh, this idea of imagining yeah imagining your anxiety just very small in the context of something so much bigger than you yeah my second part of my selfish band question <laughs> is uh as as someone who i you know i don't want to say i, I don't want to label you as a choral composer but identifies you know heavily as a choral composer is there any uh, any interest into writing more works for wind ensemble or for wind band yeah so i actually there's at least one choral piece that i want to adapt for wind ensemble uh and i wrote this piece and i uh i had a chance before covid hit in january to work with a high school honor band live on this piece and it was just, it was so rewarding. And they, I think even more so than, well, or maybe equally so to choral musicians and, but so much more than orchestra, bands, students and band conductors, band performers are just hungry for new music and they, they want it. And that's great because orchestras yeah. don't want it. <laughs> they don't want to commission it. I mean, some do, and we love them, but but yeah, I, so I was there working with these students, just thinking I need to do more of this as as soon as possible. And then COVID hit, and of course now everything's or most things are shut down or slower than they used to be. Uh, yes. But there will be more. There will, will be more wind ensemble pieces in the future. Yeah, to keep reminding ourselves it's temporary. But you heard it here, yes. folks. <laughs> Go bug Dale for uh for to work on a, a new piece. Um, Please. I I would be happy to join a consortium of something like that. That would be wonderful. So I want to ask a question that I ask every guest, uh, which is a very difficult question, but could you give a one singular piece of advice to up and coming composers, or maybe just advice for in general, being a, a creative person? I think, I mean, I think going back to what we talked about, just find your people and work with them as often as you can when you it's a nuisance but when you when you make those connections uh i i used to think that um like when someone commissioned me i used to think okay like that was their their one commission and now they won't commission me again but that's not true if someone really likes your work they like you if it's a mutual feeling you want to work together as often as you can mm -hmm. um so yes when you find that nurture those relationships and stay in touch with those people and and try to make those collaborations happen as often as you can because those are the most rewarding right beautiful that is great advice and like that's a lot to ask of you because you've literally every answer has been a wonderful nugget of advice <laughs> uh but uh dale i just want to thank you first of all so much for 
your willingness to be vulnerable and your willingness to do it <laughs> and to write this book, uh, staying composed, overcoming anxiety and self-doubt within a creative life, because it is just a, a wonderful, um, tool and resource for us as, as creatives, um, to make our, <laughs> make our lives a little bit better. Um, so thank you for that. And also just, um, thank you for taking the time to speak about it. I know that many, many people will, uh, enjoy your wise words of wisdom uh, and can apply it to their own lives. So thank you so much for taking the time to, to be on the podcast. Thank you so much again for having me on it. Thanks so much for spending time with us in the band room. If you want to learn more about anything we discussed in today's episode, check out the links found on our website, bandroompod.com where you can find many other exciting resources if you like what you heard make sure to subscribe to the bandroom podcast so you can get it into your device whenever there's a new episode posted and give us that rating and review if you have a chance and tell your friends how much you enjoyed it if you really love the show consider donating to our new patreon page where you can donate to brp and get some extra incentives in return or you could always just buy some really cool BRP merch, helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Follow us on our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube to keep up with what's on the go. And if you have any thoughts on today's episode, leave us a comment on our website or even cooler, leave me a voicemail on our hosting website, anchor.fm slash bandroompod slash message, where your voicemail might be featured in a future episode of BRP. Stay safe and be well, bandies. Thanks again for stopping by the band room. Bandroom.